Welcome to Green Street Talks, a podcast by One Kronos that lives at the intersection of capital markets, leadership, and technology in the context of a complex world moving 67,000 miles an hour. I'm Jesse Greif with One Kronos. We've got a really special show for you today. Rob Luca, head of trading for Vanguard's Quant Equity Group, and Mark Luca, Executive Director in Systematic Equity Trading at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Not only are these guys senior executives at two of the world's largest asset managers, but they also happen to be twin brothers. In this episode, we talk about each of their jobs, what got them to where they are, the impact each of them had on each other's careers and character, systematic trading and what it takes to be great in that seat, equity market design, innovation, and more. Excited to jump in, but before that, nothing in this episode constitutes investment advice, an offer, recommendation, or solicitation by One Kronos or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Okay, let's get into it. Okay, thank you guys for coming. I am here with Mark Luca, Executive Director in Systematic Equity Trading at JP Morgan Asset Management and Rob Luca, head of trading for quantitative equity trading at Vanguard. Uh, You might notice that they both have the same last name and that's because they are twins. And so very excited to be here with both of them today. And uh, without giving further um, uh, description of their biographies, I'm gonna actually let them introduce each other. And I'm going to let Mark go first because I understand that Mark is at least two minutes older. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> so, Mark, please introduce your brother. Okay. Thanks a lot, first of all. Thanks for being here. I'm super excited. Um, my brother, Rob, graduated from Loyola as an accounting major. Uh, he briefly worked as a portfolio accountant and then joined BMP Paribas in the securities lending department. After a few years, he moved into equity derivatives, doing mostly statarb and high-frequency trading. And uh, after BNP he, uh, moved operations to New York, he joined AJO, a, a quantitative equity investment shop in Philadelphia. Uh, Rob did a variety of things at AJO, become, uh, including becoming co-head of the trading desk, developing a domestic international transaction cost model, which used uh, both traditional stats as well as machine learning, and conducting portfolio construct- construction research. Um, upon AJO's closing in 2020, Rob briefly worked at a, as a data science consultant before joining the trading desk of Vanguard's Quantitative Equity Group, which he now heads. He's also very passionate and active in diversity, equity, and inclusion at Vanguard and sits on the Investment Management Group's DE&I Council. And uh, throughout his career, he demonstrated a consistent love of lifelong learning. While at BMP Paribas, he took a dozen math and computer science classes to upskill himself. He obtained the CFA designation, passed the CPA exam, and in 2008 graduated with an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Years later, he continued his formal education at the University of California, Berkeley, obtaining his second master's, a master's in information and data science, where he graduated in 2020. He lives in Bluebell, Pennsylvania with his wife and four kids, ages four, 6 to 14, and he likes to play golf poorly and is Ouch. an avid Philadelphia sports fan. <laughs> okay, Rob, do you sign off on that uh, description? Uh, I will endorse it, yes. Okay, all right. Can we get the bio for your brother, please? <laughs> yes. But also, thanks for having us on this podcast. Jeff. Absolutely. It's, it's nice to be here. Uh, so my brother Mark graduated from Loyola University as well as a business major and started his career in client services at SEI Investments and then at Vanguard servicing high net worth client accounts right around the bursting of the dot-com bubble. After learning about the business there for a few years, he moved to securities lending, first trading government and treasury securities, and later moving into equities, still within securities lending. That experience motivated him to make a career in trading, so he took a job in what was then called Vanguard's Quantitative Equity Group, the Portfolio Management Group. Initially, his job was at a statistician, but within a year, he moved to the trading desk as a trader and assistant index portfolio manager. Mark's next chapter brought him to New York City, where he moved to the sell side at Royal Bank of Canada. He worked there for five years, first in portfolio trading and later in electronic trading. After learning a ton about several market structure topics, he took that knowledge back to the buy side at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, where he's been for the last decade. At J.P. Morgan, he's increased the role of systematic trading by helping, helping build a homegrown order management system, increasing automation, 
focusing on a disciplined, iterative approach to trading and expanding his desk's collaboration with trading partners. My brother lives with his wife and two kids in Brooklyn, but continues to wear his Philly sports fan heart on his sleeve. <laughs> so taking a step back, okay, you both went to Loyola undergrad. You both went into to securities lending somewhat early in your career. I think, Rob, you started in securities lending first. Not too long after that, you each pursued your MBA, Master's in Business Administration. Mark, I think you pursued that first. Mark, you were at Vanguard at the time or earlier, and Rob, you joined Vanguard more recently. Fast forward to now, and you're both senior leaders in systematic trading at two of the world's largest asset managers. So there's obviously a lot of similarities here in addition <laughs> to you guys being twins. Um, can you guys tell us, uh, and we'll start with Rob, can you tell us about um, a bit about your influence on each other's career paths? Sure. Well, I think Mark, the most obvious influence that Mark has had on my career has been uh, that I'm at Vanguard now. You know, Mark worked there over a decade ago, anyway, uh, roughly, and he had really good relationships to this day. And so when AJO was closing down, um, I knew that I wanted the last chapter of my career to be at a place that I could feel proud of. And knowing some of the guys that Mark used to work with, I knew that would be true. And, and I'm I was happy to find out once I got there that it was even more true than I had anticipated. You know, Vanguard really does put the clients first. And so I got to work with good, humble people that are always doing the right thing, and, and none of that would have happened if not for Mark. Uh, that's nice to hear. Uh, so, <laughs> so I would say um, from my end, so, you know, I was at Vanguard after um, the dot-com bubble, and um, – the market had sold off quite a bit, as we all probably remember, and um, after, when the dot-com bubble burst, of course. And, uh, you know, jobs in trading and finance in general were, were pretty tight back then. And when they kind of started to loosen and there was a little bit of room to move around, one of the first jobs that I had an opportunity to even apply for was in securities lending at Vanguard. Mm. And frankly, had my brother not been in securities lending, I don't know how much I would have known about it and, and what kind of doors I would have opened and how that would have pushed me or at least allowed me to get to things that I was interested in. So that certainly um, allowed me to do that. And then kind of in a broadening, broader sense, I would say just having someone that you can trust so implicitly do something uh, so similar to what you do Really, just throughout our careers, we've always talked to each other about opportunities and, you know, the job market in general and, and kind of where we should be taking our careers. So it really, you know, obviously we all have lots of people we can trust, but having that intersection of be someone you can trust and someone who knows exactly what you do so right. well right. was really beneficial. Very nice. Yeah, I want to echo that, Jesse. I mean, really, we're a bunch of paranoid folks on the buy side as traders and Oftentimes, we don't like to share information, and it really is invaluable to have someone, not just that you can trust, but you actually respect their opinion and think they're smart. Uh, it's, just been, it's just been a gift, really. Did you pay him to say this, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I've been paying him my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, for, for those less familiar with what systematic equity trading means, can you summarize the workflow from portfolio selection through to execution? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, you know, systematic trading really is kind of a, a disciplined approach to trading. Um, I think of it personally, and I think our desk thinks of it as an iterative process where you kind of try things based on what you know about, you know, the marketplace and market structure, and you make, you, you trade, you measure, you make very small, deliberate changes, you measure, you change again, and you change based on what you've done. And also, obviously, how the marketplace is continuously um, changing. So um, I think that being said, I think that process lends itself very well to machine learning because, I mean, that's what practically what machine learning was built for, making sure. small changes and continually changing as the environment changes. So we, of course, use that pr pretty uh, – it's certainly a growing part of what we do. Gotcha. And so how is the decision made of kind of – high touch versus low touch or systematic versus non-systematic like there's some type of communication from 
either portfolio managers or something on behalf of them to to say, look, like we're transitioning from portfolio A to portfolio B, and uh, therefore, you know, certain securities need to be bought, other securities need to be sold. I assume that many of that is aggregated on behalf of kind of many different uh, portfolio implementations. How is it decided what channel they go through within J.P. Morgan Asset Management? Uh, yeah, that's a great for, question. For, for U.S. equities, I guess, as an example. So, um, I mean, to be honest with you, we kind of have a global process for that. I so, see. Um, certainly, everything is aggregated, so that's a great point. Um, I would say there's kind of three different things that we think of. First of all, the type of trade. Second of all, the uh, type of portfolio or portfolio manager. And thirdly, the liquidity. So... Um, in systematic trading, you know, our desk, like you kind of alluded to, is split between systematic trading and uh, high-touch trading. Um, and the high-touch trading is really for, you know, systematic trading used to be seen as a way to get kind of the easy trades out of the way so that right. traders could sort of focus on the harder trades. And it's not not that, but it's it's kind of expanded. So what we look at is, so first of all, for certain types of portfolios, take structured equities that lend itself well to, that tend to have broader baskets anyway and lend itself well to the systematic process, our systematic trading takes all of that. And then we also trade all um, kind of portfolio rebalances and any kind of basket trading where there'd be cash flow, things like that. And then lastly, we look for individual trades. Everything comes through systematic trades. And if it's a less liquid trade, it goes to the high-touch desk. And if it's more liquid, it stays with us. And I will say the definition of more liquid is certainly expanding. So we look at lots of different liquidity statistics, um, spread, uh, ADV, things like that. Um, and then there's also a human element to it. Um, if we think that there's a reason that a certain trade might need to be part of a high-touch trade, then we would send that with it. Like, for example, you know, if a portfolio manager sends like $50 million of one name and $50 million of another, and one seems like it would be systematic, a buy of one and a sell of the other, right. they're going to be traded together by the right. touch desk. Like, right. There's some reason put into it at, right. at the end of the day. And so so speaking of the the distinction between humans and machines, um, you know, for, for listeners of this, uh, that might range from folks that are kind of in our space or closer to our age to younger people uh, recently out of school. What's like the skill set? You know, is it is it... Are you guys typically hiring exclusively STEM, science, technology, engineering, math people? Or like what's the what's the profile of the average, call it like 25 to 30 year old? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think a well-rounded desk needs, I would say, sort of two sort of kind of very different things. One, you need people with a lot of experience who know the marketplace. Because like I said, the beginning of a systematic process starts with kind of an educated idea of what might work hmm. um, and for that you need really any even when they started building algorithms they're just trying to copy what traders do right so you need somebody who really knows what traders would do at certain times and what might work and what might not work and then beyond that we're definitely looking for more and more statistics skills um, stem just what you said um, any kind of python you know there used to be i'd kind of exclusively work for big firms and at big firms there used to be for a long time, kind of an attitude where it's like, we have people who are developers and we have people who trade. Right. And traders don't develop because there's a, a bit of a risk there. They don't want people just developing and there needs to be a process and that's fine. But I think more and more of those lines are blurring. As a matter of fact, the most recent person to our desk was a developer in trading before he, he joined our desks. So. Right, that makes sense. Um, and, and taking a step back, so you were a program trader uh, for nearly five years at RBC prior to joining J.P. Morgan Asset Management, where you've now been for almost 10 years. How has program trading given you, and, and, and for those who, are, who may be less familiar, I would summarize program trading as um, kind of the, the origin of systematic trading because you're dealing with baskets of securities or baskets of stocks. Uh, and therefore, it, it, it's nearly impossible to deal with them individually. Um, here I am talking to two systematic traders. Perhaps they would explain it differently. But uh, how has program trading given you unique insights to be great in your current seat? Uh, yeah, first of all, I totally agree that program trading 
really kind of morphed into systematic trading. And I think that, um, you know, trading a baskets of stock, you absolutely have to do that. It's sort of a double-edged sword. You know, you have a lot of balls in the air, but on the other hand, as long as you're keeping things even, you don't care if you get beat up on one stock as right. long as you are saving that money on another. So it's a way of like managing outliers. And I think being in program trading and growing up in program trading, because it's, it's not unlike what I did at Vanguard, um, it, it kind of gives you a mindset of being disciplined and having an iterative process. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, the measure and improve and repeat, I think, is really what systematic trading is about as well as program trading. Gotcha. I, I'm, I'm blowing through all of the uh, interview advice of being chronological here. So, like, I'm, I'm going to use your point on Vanguard to take a further step back. So you traded for their passive and active funds, both domestic and international. I'm curious about how that experience is different from your role today not just that it's different firms but like i think what's neat for the for the audience to hear about is that was the early 2000s and now fast forward 20 years or so liquidity dynamics are meaningfully different the the proportion of the market that is institutional is very different um can you talk about it from that perspective absolutely absolutely so um so when i was at vanguard you know i was kind of an index fund trader primarily we did trade for the active quant as well but <clears throat> Certainly back then, the index funds were dominant as far as what we were trading. Um, so everything was, you know, what you were trading at the end of the day dominated what you were doing. Ironically, the end of the day liquidity is much better now than it was then, so I could have used some of that. Uh, <laughs> I think that um, I'm also, I mean, the biggest difference is tr I was trading indexes then, and now I'm trading predominantly JP Morgan as a fundamental shop. We, we especially recently, have had huge structured equity growth, but predominantly it's the big trades are fundamental. So dealing with the portfolio managers is much different. I think, honestly, after having worked in program trading on the sell side, worked as an index trader, really, it's more about just getting the experience from from as many angles as possible. I think that any trader, you know, you're it's kind of you're you're in a pool and you're you're trading against various people, whether it be market makers and high frequency traders, hedge fund traders, portfolio traders, you know, position traders, as many of those things as you can be, you know who you're trading against and what they care about and what they don't care about. So, you know, if you're having a negotiation with somebody, if, if you know what they care about and what they're not going to budge on and you know what they don't care about, then right. that's what you go after. Right. So I think the more you know about everybody you're trading with, the better. Right. Makes sense. So, Rob, switching to you. So you've had experience across portfolio management, portfolio construction, trading research and execution, and you've had that at, at multiple firms. Um, so very qualified to, to, to answer this one. Can you explain to listeners the importance or lack thereof of execution, uh, trading execution in the context of the other moving parts, namely alpha generation and risk? And so I asked this question because um, as an execution guy, uh, we love to go into meetings with people like you and think that like execution is of the utmost importance. And it can be particularly like, or I believe that it can be particularly if it's a large firm and a large fund, like saving even a portion of a basis point can be meaningful. Um, but it's in the grand scheme of many moving parts. So can you talk a bit about that? Sure. So I also am biased. I think execution is extremely important. I think that execution is where alpha goes to die, right? And, and so for people that aren't familiar with trading, you know, if you're high frequency trading, stat arb, market making, those types of trading strategies make money. I think when most people think about trading, they think, I'd like to make money. And in, in a long only, or, or even I should really more say an institutional context, trading is a cost, right? People have a good idea. They've spent a ton of effort, time and effort on building an alpha model uh, in order to predict whether stocks will go up or down. I've been blessed to have typically worked at places where we have had alpha. And so if, if I want to buy a stock when it's trading at 100, in all likelihood, I'm going to buy it higher than 100. And so it's a cost. I want to make that clear first. And it's where you can really lose a lot of money. So 
for example, if your average costs are something like 20, let's just say 20 basis points, it's a lot easier to go to 30 than it is to go down to 10. Sure. An order of magnitude, right? So you can really tip your hand as an institutional trader. And once the market gets a sense of that, your trades can run away from you. And so it's important that you know, it's e- even um, modest improvements are really, really important so that you don't l- fall behind. Uh, in addition, you know, at the multiple places that I've worked, I've modeled transaction costs, which is the output of our trades. And that can play a role. I've always been a quant. And in most quant shops, you have a portfolio optimization that says, hey, I want to maximize alpha, less risk, less risk, less return. And risk is also, by the way, I consider it a place where alpha goes to die, right? If you have an unintended bet and you don't realize it, right. that's very similar to trading. Now, obviously, alpha is probably the king, uh, but uh, it, it can you can leak out uh, all your alpha in trading. But what I was going to say is when you model transaction costs, that goes into the optimization and there can be a lot of interaction there. So it can be much like Mark was saying that you know, and I believe that there's a very multiplicative effect of the same person trading and, and, and researching or coding or however you want to describe it. It's the same here. If you know what your alpha is and you're familiar with how it was constructed and then you come up with a transaction cost model, uh, for example, if you put volatility in your transaction cost model, that might steer you into different stocks. Um, and, and that's good to know. One of the biggest successes I had modeling transaction costs is getting a revision factor into the transaction cost model. And that had a big effect. We were going after short-term revisions. This was at a prior shop, much less. And so I think it's it's useful to have the combination. Gotcha. Um, so what's been, what's been pretty impressive to me is, is a story that you told me at some point about some advice that you got um, from, I think, a, a senior person in your organization or a mentor of yours um, and it was earlier in your career. Can you tell us about your transition from securities lending to trading and how you were able to make that change? That seemed to be like a pivotal change in your career path to set you on the path to where you are now. Yeah, I was very lucky. First of all, I got very lucky. We all get lucky throughout our career, right? <laughs> and I happened to be at Cooper Neff, which was a subsidiary of BNP Paribas. Right place, right time. We were doing really cool stuff back in the 90s. and. I was fresh out of school, didn't know how cool it was, frankly. So we're, we're doing index arbitrage and stat arb and all sorts of interesting trading strategies. And I was in securities lending, but I was friendly with one of the traders that was in the index arb group. And I was asking him for advice on how to get over there. And he said, just just go into the CEO's office and tell him. Hmm. And I was like, well, that takes some guts here. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. But I did it. And... He was very receptive, and within six months, I was over there. And I just think it's a, it was such a valuable lesson to me that, hey, you got to work hard, you got to perform, and I still believe life is all is, – is, ma- the majority of life is luck. Yeah. But you got to be ready for that luck, and sometimes you got to make it yourself. And that was really, really good advice for me to follow, and, and it worked, and I've applied it <laughs> since then as well. So can, can we – can we zoom in a little bit more to that learning lesson? Like, can you tell us, I mean, you go into this person's office and uh, he, she, they have a million different things on their plate. Um, and did, like, did you folks know each other? Like, what, what do you actually say? Right. So this is, it's a great question. This is back in the late 90s and it's in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, and we're trading I think we were close to 10% of the volume on the New York Stock Exchange. Wow. So it's a very weird environment where we're not in New York, but we're heavy traders. Right. And yeah, this guy was doing a million things, brilliant guy. And I did exactly that. I just walked into his office, um, introduced myself. He knew me from walking around in the hallways, but he didn't mm-hmm. know who I was. And I just introduced myself and, and said, you know, just got up the guts and said, hey, I'm really interested in trading. This is what I've been doing. Please keep me in mind. And I think a lot of, like, at this point, if someone did that to me, I'd be wildly happy, right? Half of this is getting people that are motivated and really want to learn and do stuff. And, yeah, sure, you have to back it up. But what what I would, I, I know that I was very loyal to him in the sense that I always wanted to make him not regret that decision. Right. And so I would happily do it for someone else. And I just think, uh, 
you know, just getting over that initial fear and not demanding anything, but just saying, hey, I'm raising my hand. Right. If you don't call on me, that's okay. But uh, my hand's up. Right. Right. It's a great story. Um, so can you tell us about another thing that's been really impressive to me and, and many others is like your um, your like really strong desire to upskill yourself, uh, you know, for lack of better terms. Um, you know, you were an accounting major in undergrad. You had no coding or programming experience prior to Cooperneff. Within four years of starting there, though, you were leading an, an algorithmic trading team uh, for a high, for hedge fund and high frequency strategies. And within a few years, you'd later built transaction cost models, analyzed terabytes of, of tick data, automated broker evaluation. Now you're running all of trading for the quantitative equities group. So, you you know, you have a number of different degrees, but in addition to that and kind of in between and in Mark's intro, he talked about a number of kind of like courseworks and things that you did. And I think that like a lot of folks that I talk to and a lot of questions that I get, because um, I was a psychology major in undergrad. Um, and so that's, you know, fairly distanced from like running an electronic trading organization. Um, and people ask me about that a lot. Um, and it took a lot of investment in myself. Um, and so tell us about that journey for you. Yeah. First of all, I think psychology is an awesome major. And I think when Mark was describing some of the benefits of program trading, I think one of the best things about, I'll say, quant trading in general is removing those human biases. So right. I think that's an incredible uh, major to have. Yeah. I, when I started at Cooper Neff, you know, the CEO was a, uh, I don't even remember what medal he won, but he was a brilliant mathematician. Mm. And everything was run really on quant. And I remember looking, he gave me, or someone gave me the active portfolio management book. And it's all formulas. And I remember looking at it being like, I haven't seen these formulas since high school. Right. And I just dove in. So one, I'm always, I think this is a natural trader habit. You're always wondering what you don't know. What am I missing here? Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you do that with math or statistics or, or, or machine learning or anything, there's always something you don't know. Right. And, and it just kind of fuels you to keep going. Um, I think that being in Philly definitely influenced me. So if you're in a city that's not dominated by finance, then you want to make sure that you have all your options open. And the way to do that is to upskill yourself, right? And the easiest thing to do, in my opinion, is technology. Math is, is probably second. But if you're looking at someone and, and they have math skills, they have coding skills, and they have trading skills, to me, it's it's almost in that order of difficulty to teach. And so I wanted to make myself available. And then the last thing is I tend to be a pr pretty curious person. Uh, I don't like not understanding something. <laughs> and I don't believe that there's that much out there that anyone can't, can't understand. And it's just a matter of elbow grease and effort. And so... Yeah, I really just, just when I see something that I don't like, I get very curious, or sorry, that I don't understand, I get very curious, and that will motivate me to learn until I'm satisfied, and it usually takes me a while. Yeah, um, well said. I want to I wanna ask about one of your degrees in particular uh, at the Wharton School. Uh, you and I share that alma mater and that experience, different time frames, but um, you know, one, one of the other interesting questions that I get from folks is, you know, like, what did you go into it for? And like, um, was that your takeaway coming out of it? And for me, like I went into it for specific hard skills. Cause like I said, I was psychology major. I had worked at Goldman Sachs for a number of years, but there were a lot of like technical things like, you know, options modeling and, you know, venture capital and, and, uh, and those types of things. I was kind of less interested in like the organizational behavior type things generally because that's what I studied in, in undergrad. And, um, so that's what I went into it for. But what I got out of it was fairly different. It was really kind of like, I guess I would summarize it as like the confidence to tackle nearly any type of problem. I also was not a programmer, but like kicking and screaming, I like was dragged to do, you know, linear and integer programming, something I had kind of declared to myself was an extreme, would be an extremely high bar. And guess what? I was able to do it and I was able to be like fairly competent. Like, um, and so it, it gave me this like level of confidence to tackle nearly any problem. 
And uh, I didn't imagine that that's what I would go into it for. Not to mention like a great network and a, and a lot of really great people and uh, more experience with Philadelphia, which is also <laughs> with West Philadelphia, yeah. uh, which is also great. But um, can you answer that same question? Because I think that your answer is kind of similar in kind of what you were going for and what you got out of it. Yeah. I mean, being, being different. Confidence is a great one. Uh, I That was not going to be my answer, but I, I love your thought there. It really does, you know, you're with the some of the best teachers in the world, some of the best students in the world. And if you can hang there, that does boost your confidence. I went into it. I remember graduating from college and, uh, you know, we weren't, our sister had gone to the university or had got accepted to the university of Pennsylvania, but we couldn't afford it. So our mom was just told us like, go, go somewhere you can get scholarships. Right. And I didn't really think anything of it in high school. Well, fast forward to Cooper Neff, everyone's a Penn grad, and there's a strong, in my opinion, Ivy League bias. So I thought, well, let me rectify that. How can I get in, into one of these right. schools? Uh, what I got out of it was a wonderful experience, great learnings, and really a great network. But the network is different than I think most people think it is. For one, I'm actually very good friends with a lot of these people to this day. But the, But the second thing is... You are really with some very, very smart people. And, you know, to this day, the smartest person I've ever met is, is a Wharton classmate of mine. And I saw him move through marketing, math, valuation of companies with ease. And I thought, well, if he can do that, you know, the rest of us probably should be able to, too. And so I think you realize that people are facing similar problems just in very different realms. Right. And that is a and I found that at Berkeley too actually, but that's a great way to have insights that maybe other people don't have and you can really learn a lot from that. So I am I'm, I'm going to steal your confidence answer <laughs> and then I'm going to add uh, definitely branding has helped so that's kind of similar to confidence. Uh, but also the network in a way where you can ask really smart people questions and they're usually pretty excited to pick up the phone and solve that problem or help you solve that problem. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about innovation. And Mark, this one goes to you. So um, Vanguard was the first broadly adopted index fund, which spun out of Wellington, the first balanced mutual fund. Uh, side note, I was an intern at Wellington in 2005, so <laughs> connecting our various employers here. Nice. Um, JP Morgan was the first U.S. investment trust and the first money market fund. Um, now, f fast forward nearly a century, uh, can both of you, starting with Mark, talk a bit about how both of your firms continue to foster innovation in today's era? And, and I'd give a little bit of context of like, you know, I work for a technology company where we're small and nimble and we've designed ourselves to be nimble I think that at larger firms it's much more challenging to stay nimble and a lot of it has to do with culture and organizational design um, and and technology because it's so intertwined in what we do so I, I just kind of like biased some things there <laughs> but um, yeah what would you say mark in terms of how you guys uh, how JP Morgan asset management continues to foster innovation uh, yeah, sure. I mean, like you said, you know, you work at, you know, a small fintech firm. I think when people think you're a firm, I don't think you have to explain the innovation. I think that's what people think of. When they think of J.P. Morgan, maybe that's less so. Um, I think that within the walls, I mean, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, we have firm-wide hackathons. And I mean, I think it's a deliberate thing where it says, you know, innovation can't stop. And that's the way forward. So we have firm-wide ha hackathons. We have firm-wide um, innovation contests. And, you know, many of those turn into real projects that we use in the company. Um, I, I think the results really are are the proof. And, you know, JP, JP Morgan Asset Management's a world leader in active ETFs as well as derivative investing. I mean, those were certainly innovative things. And um, in trading, we feel we're certainly very innovative too. And our firm size gives us a proprietary data advantage. I mean, we execute, we've executed 25 million plus orders over the last decade. We execute somewhere over 10,000 orders a day globally. So we see that as a proprietary data advantage and we use that data advantage with, you know, we use machine learning to harness that data and use it as an advantage. So I think we, we're set up for innovation and the results show that it's working. Rob, what would you say? Yeah, I think that you know we're we're continually using it as well. Uh, we use machine learning in our 
alpha model. We are in the midst of using it in our transaction cost model. We do all sorts of automation of trades and trade analysis. I think you hit the nail on the head, though, with culture. I think it starts with making it a priority. We have an innovation group at Vanguard. Within my group, which is the Quant Equity Group, we innovate a lot. And I think what our what fosters that is good leadership and the chance to, you know, I think if you have bright, motivated people, the best thing you can do is kind of just get out of their way right. and, and let them ideate, for lack of a better word. Right. And I think that I've been fortunate enough throughout my career to work at places like that. Vanguard does a great job of it. Like you said, started with innovation uh, however many years ago. So hire the right people and then set up the right environment where they can thrive. Right. So uh, you, you both have mentioned uh, machine learning a few times. And I want to I drill in on that a little bit um, to ask where machine learning might not be uh, applicable uh, in your organization or in your workflow. So like for me as a venue operator, right, um, things need to be explainable. We need to be able to like, you know, explain why certain um, outcomes were arrived at. And so, you know, there's this element of kind of measuring, having benchmarks. You know, there's a broader field now uh, at Penn and elsewhere of machine ethics of kind of like, uh, you know, this is quite common in um, school applications for diverse or historically underrepresented groups. Also, we see a lot about this in, you know, Facebook and, and elsewhere in terms of like how their algos are making decisions because an ML algo unconstrained will just optimize for whatever it feels is best. It's not the machine's fault. It's just you didn't you didn't put boundaries around it um, or you weren't kind of like optimizing for, you know, minimizing unforced error or, or something like that across populations. So machine learning is a great tool, uh, but there's also kind of an interesting discussion of like where it might not be relevant. So do either of you kind of like curious if you have any thoughts or takes on where you think machine learning might not be relevant? I typically think of machine learning as just another lens to analyze something. And it's typically good with non-linearities where you can see a jump in something rather than just a line. So yeah, you have to understand how the methods work and where they can go wrong. Uh, but there's been a lot of advances in, in analyzing uh, different machine learning methods like SHAP is, is being used on neural networks. But to your point, Jesse, we have the same problem. We have to explain why we want to buy a stock in our alpha model and and um you know it can be a challenge but i think that the uh industry is catching up very quickly and i don't just mean in finance i mean really in technology right? sure uh, so yes yeah. i mean you know just add to that i think you know as we automate or even when, frankly when they started building algos or now i think that the next generation of that is machine learning and trading I think there's always the risk of kind of things running away with it. Um, and I can say that on our desk, we monitor trades that are run through our machine learning process the exact same way we monitor trades that we're manually trading. It's in the same systems, we have the same views, and a human is responsible for every last one of those shares that right. are traded. Um, and side point to that, I think that that's where, that's some of the risk is losing some of the experience of traders who have actually traded manually and understand why things should be set up a certain way and deferring more to people who are, who are very good at machine learning, which is a very important skill, but that needs to be a partnership. Right. That's what it comes down to. Right, right. Yeah, I think I think you just have to have, the, the, your risk controls need to improve. I mean, we have yep. real-time risk controls that we couldn't have dreamt of 20 years ago. And so that obviously is going to increase in importance. Yeah. Agreed. So I want to talk a bit about the market and market design. Now, before we before we jump into that, um, I want to talk a bit about current themes. So the past few months have been relatively low vol, a little bit of a, a few exceptions, but we've, we've seen We've only seen the VIX, which is a which for those that are less familiar, this is a general measure of, of volatility in the market um, above a certain level, above 20, uh, a handful of times, call it five or six, and uh, twice as many days below 15 than above. Interest rates have been pretty high and peaking. 
a um, little bit of a, of, a, of a pivot, so to speak, in the past week, week and a half by the Fed, um, and at least two global conflicts going on, and, and a lot of this has result, resulted in like somewhat muted institutional activity. Um, looking forward, going into 2024, um, and starting with Mark, what's your take on trading and liquidity dynamics we should expect for, call it, the next six months? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, like you said, we've definitely seen lower volatility. Um, usually, in the new year, there there is a bit of an uptick in in volatility, so that could increase some trading moving toward the lit market. Um, we're starting to see more liquidity at the top of the book, which is a good thing, which would also theoretically pull liquidity into the lit market. But um, you know, I guess the, probably the big X factor is the regulatory environment. There. Are I think 40 new potential regulations, rules and regulations. So that's an X factor that we, you know, as traders all need to monitor and, and keep up on. Um, I think the lower volatility that we've seen has driven, certainly driven people into dark pools because it just behooves you to sit in a dark pool if the prices aren't moving as much. Um, and I think that has made the street, that coupled with the really increased automation across the buy side has moved the street to create a lot of ways to automate um, some dark pools and strategies for those dark pools. I think that has certainly benefited, hopefully, um, one Kronos, I think IEX, Luminex, conditional pools, and, and, and the such. So if we don't see increased volatility, I think those automation strategies will start to increase dramatically. Rob, before you start, I'm going to just play some trades real quick off the back of what Mark is. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, what's your take? Well, I agree with a lot of what Mark said there. Uh, as a quant, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I have not done any analysis on this, so I don't want anyone to take my advice. <laughs> but I will say that I think, you know, to your point, vol's low, and, and we think it'll probably is more likely to increase and decrease in the, in the next few months. If we look just a little bit longer and by the way, volumes have been good, right? I mean, we really have not had trouble executing our trades any more than we have in the past. So that, right. that's the good news. Um, I think that if we t if we think about belly aching for a second here, it's it's the fact that we can't really get blocks done, right? And right. that's not super recent. But going forward, particularly as Mark brought up, you know, the SEC proposals is probably longer than six months. But nonetheless, we're interested to see how that shakes out. Um, you know, coupled with with a decrease in blocks where nobody wants to trade blocks, has there ever been a period where c traders don't complain about not being able to find blocks? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably not. I think in the early two thousands. Yeah, exactly. Part, part of me thinks it's a generational thing where if you grew up on algos, you really just would prefer to hit one right in the middle of the fairway than right. to take a chance. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. But but no, you're probably right. <laughs> we do like to bellyache. There you go. And and there you heard it about blocks from systematic traders. <laughs> um, okay, so so going back to the innovation theme, and uh, this is a question I, I really enjoy asking because it's very like first principles kind of question. So, and, and it's also like, you know, we're a bit biased at One Kronos because we're in the market design business. Um, but so if you were building the equities market from scratch, the U.S. equities market. How would it operate? And to give some context, and 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 Rob will go with you on this one. Um, we currently have we got 16 exchanges. We have 30 something dark pools. We have a handful of single dealer platforms. But in reality, there's all these exchange order types. There's segmentation in a bunch of these dark pools, which create you know you can you can honestly think of them as like unique sleeves of liquidity themselves. Um, you got OTC trading as well. Um, and so, you know, that quickly adds to probably over a hundred different liquidity sources. And so, um, the majority of liquidity trades in continuous markets, which prioritize winners based on speed. If the three of us are all willing to buy something at $10, whoever got there first is the general paradigm first in first out. Um, and, and so like the, the prisoner's dilemma game that this has landed us all in is that like the smartest air quote strategy generally, particularly for electronic trading, is to take a parent order or actually going even higher than that, like portfolio transitions. You have this large portfolio made up of many different securities, possibly different assets from different asset classes, but many different securities transitioning from point A to point B. And the most thoughtful way that we can get to is that we slice these up into like 100 share 
lots. In fact, like looking at the top five dark pools by volume, four out of the top five, their average trade size is well under 100 shares yeah. now. Mm-hmm. So like that's where we are currently. So like if we were just like white papering this whole thing, how would you design it? Yeah, it's a, it's a really tough question. I mean, in, in reality, right, we still have a really good market. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not giving anybody a pass here, but it's a very efficient market. It's easy to trade. If you, if you trade globally, you know, there are, I'd say it's unmatched. It's probably the best market in the world. That doesn't mean we can't improve it. Um, I, I would, if you think about one central limit order book, right, uh, I'm generally somewhat of a fan of that in the sense that if you look at futures and you go to trade futures, that is quite easily done and effectively one exchange. I'm also a big believer in free markets, right? And that the market will come up with solutions. And those two thoughts are very uh, juxtaposed to each other. So I'm glad that I'm not the one designing it. Uh, I don't think I would design it with as many venues as possible, but I also think that in general, uh, it's it's a pretty good market. Mark, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'd certainly say fewer exchanges. I don't think we need 16 exchanges, although in actuality there are seven because uh, 12 of the 16 exchanges are run by three companies. Right. But, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I don't even think having too many exchanges is the problem. Like you alluded to, dark pools trade hundreds, of, a couple hundred shares at a time as well. So those are pretty much exchanges. Um, I think access fees are certainly a problem. I, I read a, a research study lately that said uh, there are, estimated 1,300 different pricing paths an order can go through. That's absurd. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, first of all, that's the only reason there are so many exchanges is for the access fees. Um, I don't know, maybe one exchange and just one auction, everybody enters, orders all day and there's a one price, <laughs> market clearing price at the end of the day. I don't know, there's a, I don't think that would ever actually happen or I probably wouldn't even want that to happen. But, <laughs> but uh, I think simple is better is the point. I like those ideas. Um, so on the topic of trading venues themselves, um, can you guys comment, and Mark, we'll start with you, can you comment on some of the innovations or themes that you think have been most, um, that have the most potential or have been the most promising in, call it, the past 10 years? We live in a new era where there's a growing trend of venues and order types, frankly, that optimize for quality rather than simply volume. And, and I'll, I'll be, you know, one of the, uh, certainly not the first, but one of the folks to say, IEX certainly uh, catalyzed this trend. Um, and I think you were at RBC at the time when, when a lot of this was happening. Um, but anyhow, can you comment on some of the more promising innovations that um, that you've noted? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, thanks. And I was at RBC working uh, when those guys kind of discovered everything and I learned a ton from them. So um, I think that I mean, since my brother and I have started trading, which certainly is more than 10 years, uh, um, I think the biggest innovation are dark pools themselves. Just, you know, a place where large buyers and large sellers can meet up without giving up any anonymity if they don't trade and uh, really minimizing information leakage. There were a ton of unintended consequences from those, I think, you know, high frequency traders being able to sniff out institutional orders with, with very little capital sparked a lot of unintended consequences, was the unintended consequences and sparked things like IEX's speed bump. Um, I I think that those types of things were really what what the biggest innovations were. And I'd be remiss on on this podcast specifically, not to mention, you know, periodic auctions, uh, which really are kind of meant to be a better, fair, less gameable way. But I, I don't think I should explain what periodic auctions are to you. So... Oh, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, IEX doing the speed bump was revolutionary at the time. You know, as a professional trader, reading Flash Boys and, and talking to Mark at the time, uh, it was definitely an aha moment where you thought, I knew that was happening to me, but I didn't exactly understand the dynamics. Uh, that, as you said, catalyzed others. And I think anything that, look, I think that, A, not all high-frequency trading is bad. Some of it is additive. But there is uh, detrimental high-frequency trading that we need to combat. And I think that um, you want to – any innovation that is going to facilitate block trading or or I should say facilitating trading in size for our clients is something that we're going to get behind. So I think periodic auctions are 
uh, a good way f- to protect our clients. Same with the speed bump. And for those who don't know, the speed bump intentionally slows down your order uh, to prevent high-frequency traders from doing something that's called latency arbitrage, which is buying and selling the same name almost instantaneously and arbing the price. Makes sense. I mean, that's that's certainly music to, to our ears. I mean, from the one chrono standpoint, like we are quite literally optimizing for quality over speed and, and following in the, in the footsteps of, uh, of those before us who have been innovators. Jesse, uh, you know, I would add there that I think that your response to the market, the market's starting to demand that and traders in general are saying, hey, this is all your questions fit together. This is where alpha goes to die and it matters. And so this is where I get behind free markets. So entrepreneurs like yourself will innovate in order to try and solve a market need. Mark and I have a market uh, have a need in, in the in the stock market to optimize our execution, and so I think that's helped us, and frankly, you too. <laughs> Absolutely, we love the partnerships. Okay, so not to pitch my book too hard here, but like uh, Rob, over time, you and I have had a number of discussions about um, our product roadmap. Uh, one of the main elements of that is expressive bidding, which I'll explain in a second. And I'm um, curious to hear your take on some uh, portfolio-type use cases that you've been excited about. So for, for background to um, the audience, uh, One Kronos runs uh, periodic auctions about 10 to 20 times every second. And for each of those optimizations, for each of those auctions, we run an optimization that solves for elements of best execution. And we have a new set of tools coming out in the new year that allow users to inject constraints into our optimization process that we treat as hard boundaries uh, that relate to their execution or risk management objectives. So an example of that might be, I'm happy to trade this limit order or peg order, um, but I'm only willing to do this buy order if I can also accomplish this sell order. And being able to specify that and achieve that atomically within an auction holds a lot of value uh, to end users because currently, the way that the tra- that trading systems are generally designed is that algorithms decide schedules to trade. They delegate responsibility to a smart order router. Smart order routers ship uh, what are called child orders to trading venues. But the fidelity of that parent order's intention, or even higher level, um, the portfolio's intention, uh, is lost in that path, in that journey. So we have an optional set of tools that we're very excited to uh, push out in the new year that allow folks to do this. And so, Rob, you've had some really good thoughts on how potentially expressive bidding might be relevant to you, and uh, could you share those? Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. When you when you guys first explained it to me, uh, I immediately thought of exactly how you're describing it, which is I can buy stock X as long as I can sell stock Y at the same time. And what that does is not only does it reduce our execution costs, which is primary, but it also lowers our risk and it facilitates trading in ways that you know maybe aren't so obvious right away. Another example is I only want to trade this stock when the spread is X wide. We talked earlier about automation and machine learning and how things can go out of control. It's a great way to monitor that real time or have your algos or, or, or whatever monitor it for you or, or in this case one chronos in, in the sense that I'm now not going to be taken advantage of. In the old days we might have been watching this stock and that's the only stock we're watching. Now we're trading many, many stocks and this is exactly what we would do if we were trading it ourselves. And, and you're talking about risk reduction and uh, re- a reduction in transaction costs. It's really excited. Not only that, but you know, the world of quant trading has really become where the portfolio is a reflection of obviously our alpha and also the market. And we like to think of the whole thing as a feedback loop. And you know, we'll we'll optimize, we'll get a portfolio, then we'll go trade it and and, and what we get is expressed into the portfolio. Well, with expressive bidding, we can now say, well, I didn't know that this trade would be cheaper than I thought. I can actually generate a trade from some of our tougher positions in ways that's purely additive. I'm not going to trade this name if 
I don't have this opportunity presented to me, but if it's presented to me, I'm going to capitalize it. That has me really excited to where we're now literally in real time expressing our views. So it's really exciting stuff. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited to work with you and your brokers on that in the coming year. Thanks. So I want to talk about ETFs uh, for a minute. Um, it's no news that the growth of passive investing and of ETFs over the past, call it two decades, as well as the growth of active and of fixed income ETFs, as subheadlines of those, have been um, continuing up and to the right. Uh, but since COVID alone, ETF AUM has almost doubled in the U.S. to about $7.5 trillion, uh, with well over 12 months of consecutive inflows into those vehicles. And 2023... Um, seems to be the highest amount of inflows into ETFs ever, only second to 2021 and 2022. So um, on the turnover side, ETFs are roughly 25-30% of the of the tape um, or of, of the turnover of the U.S. market in a given day and can be as high as call it 40-45% on a day that's particularly volatile. So uh, you know, both of you are at, at shops where, um, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of um, uh, ETF involvement, passive investing and trading. Um, so you guys would have a, a, a pretty good insights as to how has this continued evolution impacted liquidity and other dynamics like correlation in trading U.S. equities more broadly. Mark, let's start with you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the numbers are what they are. And I think that um, ETF is, uh, ETFs as a percentage of the tape certainly have increased a lot. I also think that I mean, if you look at the total shares traded over the last 10 years, that's nearly doubled. So I think some of that is ad additive. Um, I do think that it's a little bit funny because, you know, I was at Vanguard when ETFs were kind of getting big. And one of the early criticisms were that they allowed ETFs allowed individual investors to slice and dice the market so fine that they became the, the individual investors would not be diversified, and that was the danger of ETFs. Right. And now there's, the ETFs generally are so broadly diversified that everybody's complaining about the correlation. So I do find that kind of funny. Um, just a personal ab observation. I think that you know at J.P. Morgan we see ETFs just really as um, just a vehicle for investments, and whatever's inside those e ETFs, it's just like mutual funds. Mutual funds don't create, don't have to be index funds, right? So so I think as Clearly, active ETFs are growing, and as that continues, I think that, frankly, people stop talking about how ETFs are causing higher correlations. Rob? Yeah, I agree. I think that ETFs are a great way for a personal investor to get cheap, broad diversification with tax efficiency, and so they're certainly a positive. I think, in general, the volume is additive, not always. Sometimes they, you don't have to go through the create and redeem process in order to trade an ETF. And a lot of times they don't, but we view that as we view the associated volume of that as beneficial because um, it's it's more volume for us to access, whether it's in the ETF or the underlying. Makes sense. So, onto a, a more, much more personal question, and Rob, we'll start with you. So, um, Rob, you've got four kids, and admittedly, most of your personal life revolves around them. To date, you've got your CPA, CFA, MBA, Masters in Info and Data Science, all from incredibly competitive programs. Mark, you go by Coach Mark outside of work, coaching your kids' sports. You're also an MBA, double major, I might add, graduating summa cum laude, and an adjunct professor at Fordham here in New York on algorithmic trading, and have a lengthy track record of volunteerism longer than most people's resumes. In addition, you guys are both husbands, happily married for 17 and 15 years, respectively, and super relatable, down-to-earth guys. My only knock is that you're both Philly sports fans, but we don't have enough time to talk about that here. So as people who seem to do life well, um, what are your guys' advice to listeners on how to manage a successful career while leading a fulfilling life? Rob. Yeah. Uh, well, I definitely don't feel like I've got it figured out, so I'll always continue to take tips. Uh, you know, I think one of the – the typical advice is do what you love, right? And I didn't know I loved trading when I started, um, so you don't have to know right away. But I do think the more you like focus your energy on things that you enjoy, the more it feels less like work, whether that's academics, 
your actual job, coaching, do, you know, don't doing anything with your kids. Like it's if you love it, then then you don't mind it. And then the second thing I'd say is time management. You know, Wharton was really good at that. It's funny. We there's certain things we just don't teach in school. Like personal finance isn't probably taught as much as it should be. Time management's not. And I remember uh, when we were at we were at a, at a dinner with uh, at the end of Wharton. We were at a dinner with the classmates, and, and one of the wives was telling a story about how her husband optimizes everything. And my wife like fell out of her chair. She said, right. "That's my husband." Right. And uh, you know, I remember thinking, what, "Everyone doesn't do that. Like that's what <laughs> life is one optimization problem, and time is what you're maximizing, right?" And so I think just being focused, picking. As you get older, it's easier to do. You start focusing on fewer things, but focus on what you love and and uh, manage your time well. Mark, uh, yeah, I certainly agree with that. Um, I actually was thinking being focused as well, but kind of in a different way. I think that you need to be present and focused in whatever you do. Um, I personally, like you, you mentioned, love coaching my children and their friends, and when I'm there, that's what I'm thinking of. And I think when you're at work, you need to be focused on that. And when you're at home, you need to be focused on your family. And I think that certainly since COVID, I think that becomes harder and harder because, you know, we're more plugged in than we ever were, especially with more people, at least on occasion, working from home or part-time working from home. And I think the lines between work and personal life have definitely been blurred, but I think it's key. I, I think all that means is you have to be deliberate about being focused on what you're doing. And uh, then, you know, I just wanted to quote uh, the late, J.P. Morgan Vice President Jimmy Lee, he was kind of famous for his career advice and, you know, top 10 things. And one of them was family comes first. And what he said was nobody ever retires wishing they spent more time in the office. And I think uh, I love that. you got you to gotta adhere to that. Family comes first. That's a great one. So both uh, Vanguard and J.P. Morgan Asset Management focus a lot on equity and inclusion. The About Us sections of both firms' websites feature those themes quite prominently, and that looks to apply not just to their human capital, but also to how they treat their clients as well as their investments. Um, you both are the children of immigrants and uh, from cultures appreciably different than the standard American upbringing. And um, I'd be remiss not to ask, how has that influenced uh your views on equity inclusion and also, frankly, your upbringing. Yeah, I think that, you know, to start, I'll talk about individuals, right? So our mom was from Ireland, our dad was from Egypt. Our mom, born in 1935, one of the most progressive women you'll ever meet. Well, she's no longer with us, but you, if you had met her, she was one of the most progressive women. And being a feminist in the 1950s is very different than today. Right, and it's not that the work is done by any means, but um, you have a much more receptive audience. So I give her a lot of credit. Uh, you know, additionally, we have an older sister who's a, a brilliant doctor, and she just crushed academics growing up. And so I think I was maybe in high school or college when this notion of of people thinking differently about women was presented to me, and I just thought it was the most absurd idea. Right, right? I, I didn't even know where that thought would come from. And that is not because I'm so enlightened. That's because I'm a product of my environment, right? And so we, you know, we traveled to Ireland, we traveled to Egypt, and obviously we're living with immigrants. And I think what you just learn is that different is different. It's not bad. It's not good. It, there's bad and good to every culture, and and difference just different. And I do strongly believe when building a team that differing points of view on any dimension is really really valuable. And um, I think that Vanguard does a great job of that. My old firm did a good job of it as well. And I feel very fortunate. But really, it's it's just a lot of times we're, we're a product of our environments. And, and I think I feel personally very fortunate that, that I had the environment that I did and that it's made me hopefully very open-minded to, to really anything. It's good to hear. Mark, yeah. anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I 100% I agree with that. I mean, our Egyptian dad moved across the world to find a corner of it where um, he wouldn't be treated different because of his nationality or his culture or his accent or the color, you know, the, the brownness of his skin. Um, our mom was an Irish woman in London in the 60s, and she faced some similar issues. And, you know, when you witness people that you love that much 
and are, that you're that close to deal with those issues and experience that, I think it's just harder to keep your head in the sand. And hopefully it stays you helps you kind of keep aware of other people's struggles and your own biases. I mean, we all have biases. That's what biases are, <laughs> right? We all have ideas based on our life experience. Sure. So hopefully seeing people, like I said, people that you love that much treated that way makes you stay aware of those things. I love that. So last question and a question for each of you. And we'll start with Rob, the younger brother. All right. What's an important value that you really admire in your brother that has influenced your character? Pass. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that... uh, (laughs) I think that, you know, Mark, and I'm very biased. He's one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And it's constant. And I think that... I have had my head down a lot throughout my life. Even in, as a child, I was, I was kind of always had my head down. And, and I think that Mark has taught me the value of really enjoying what you're doing and finding the humor in everything. And, you know, I've tried to imitate it. It might not be as funny, but I try to imitate him. All right. Good answer. Mark? Well, I'm, I'm glad this is, uh, you know, towards the end of the podcast, so I don't have to now be funny. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I would say for Robert, um, I think – Everybody probably listening has known, has already picked up that he's very driven and focused, and that has helped me be more driven. And along with that, a kind of a similar characteristic is how he's he's very deliberate, deliberate and thoughtful. And I think that like, you know, in trading, I think there's kind of two things to it, and you, you kind of need to make a plan, and then you also need to be nimble. And I think that you know I maybe am okay on my feet. Um, I think my my brother has taught me to, to be better about being thoughtful, digesting the information you're receiving in a conversation or in trading anywhere, and, and then digesting it, processing it, and then answering rather than being a little bit more reactive like I am. I love it. <laughs> well, Mark, Rob, really appreciate you guys coming on. Really appreciate you guys being on together. This is like a very special episode and a really cool opportunity for me. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it as well. And uh Thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jesse. Awesome. Very much enjoyed it. Thank you. Cool, guys. All right, folks, that's a wrap for this episode of Green Street Talks. Thank you so much to our guests, Mark and Rob Luca, and a special thanks to Maggie Stutz of One Kronos, who helped produce and edit this episode, and to my colleague Bill Turtle for the original music composition. That's all we got for today. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.